Welcome to Energy Matters, exploring awakening to your authentic self and finding purpose through mind, body, and soul. With your hosts, Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by intuitivevision.net and groundedmind.com. Energy Matters listeners, welcome back. We have a kick-ass episode for you today. I'm flanked by my co-host, Cody Edner, as always. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Hi, I'm over here. I'm here. <laughs> Let's talk about energy. <laughs> we just lost half the people. And uh, wow, what we did for this episode was pretty special. I found my favorite TED Talk of all time. And I told our publicist, Jennifer, who finds some of our guests to get this guy on if she could. And she reached out and she did. And he's here. We've done this episode by audio and video. We're going to release the video as well, which is pretty cool. It's our first time doing that. And his name is Devdat Patanaik. I probably didn't pronounce that great. He's coming in straight from India. Uh, in my eyes, he's kind of like the modern day Joseph Campbell. He's a mythologist. He's a scholar. He's a writer. He has over 30 books published and over 600 columns. He's a walking encyclopedia when it comes to myth. And uh, I absolutely loved his TED Talk on the meeting of Alexander the Great and a yogi in India. And he goes into this incredible story about how they met and fantasizes about what the conversation was like and expresses the two different worldviews, the Western and the Eastern, which I think if you're listening to this show, you're probably in the Western mindset, most of you, uh, and want to cultivate the Eastern more and synthesize the two to live a more integrated life. And he really, really brings some wisdom to the table today. I was just blown away and I was joking with Cody. It's like, you know, when you're like a Star Trek nerd and the new movie comes out and you get all the action heroes and you know all the, <laughs> you know, all the characters like, oh my God, I'm so excited. Uh, that's what this is like for me getting to talk to him. Uh, and he did not disappoint. So super excited to share this with everyone. And before we get into it, Cody has an announcement. Yeah, we are super excited to announce the release of our Awakening to Energy series. Um, you may know that a while back we released an intuitive chakra series to Daily Own, and that's been doing wonderfully. And David and I were talking, and we want to share the Awakening to Energy series that we taught uh, late last year. And we're putting it up on our website for download. Uh, so you can find it at energymatterspodcast.com. It's the Awakening Energy series that we taught live. And it's a four-week series on how to start to work with energy and tools for uh, becoming more aware at an energy level. So hope you check it out. All right, everybody. Let's do this. Put on your mythology cap. We're going on a safari. We're going in. Hey, Energy Matters listeners, welcome back to another episode. And we have possibly one of the coolest guests ever, in my opinion, like modern day <laughs> Joseph Campbell of India, Devdat Patanayak. Welcome all the way from Mumbai. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, your TED Talk is literally my favorite TED Talk of all time. When I teach meditation classes, sometimes I'll use the uh, story of Alexander the Great meeting a yogi and talk about the difference between the Western and Eastern approaches. And 
you've inspired so much. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you for that. I've probably you. watched your TED Talk 30 times. Um, <laughs> the link to it will be in the notes. I've sent it to all my friends. So can we just start out by maybe you explaining to us a bit about what exactly mythology is? Like we all have this uh, sense of it, but uh, it's almost, it's hard to grasp. Every time I try to grasp mythology, kind of, I, I can't. It's like trying to hold a liquid or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like one of those things you kind of know, but if someone says, oh, can you explain it to me? You go, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> There's stories. There's, yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you enlighten us a bit about it? So basically, mythology is how people see the world. So it's their subjective understanding of the world. And usually it is applied to a group of people, not to individuals. You can apply it to individuals, but mostly a group of people, a tribe, a clan, a community, uh, a country. It can be applied to any group of people, how they view the world. What is their idea of life, of the world? And it is expressed through stories, symbols, and rituals. So uh, when I hear, these are the tangible parts of it. The story, symbol, and ritual are tangible. And when I read the story, symbols, and rituals, I see a pattern. And I, try, I am able to understand, oh, this is how this community looks at the world. Uh, and that is how you approach mythology. So mythology is the subjective truth of people expressed through stories, symbols, rituals. Mm. Very simple mm. definition. Cool. I, I have a really odd question based on just kind of looking at the world today where things are changing so much, especially with technology we're using right now, social media, the world is changing in terms of the size of it, so to speak. Is there, so mostly when I think of mythology, I think of ancient stories, right? Is there an emerging myth, mythology? Are we kind of struggling to explain the world as it changes and, and is new? And do we do that through the old stories or are there new stories emerging? Well, fundamentally, uh, the myths don't change. Uh, mm -hmm. Fundamentally, at the, the how people see the world does not change with the technology you have. Whether mm -hmm. you are a hunter-gatherer, whether you are a farmer, whether you lived a thousand years ago, whether you live a thousand years from today, the world at a very fundamental level, how you look at life, your view of life doesn't change. For example, over the last, uh, and that's the fundamental uh, fun thing about mythology. You know, it's like the architecture of the human mind. Oh. And it's an architecture of the human mind. So when we say East, Eastern architecture, Western architecture, and it manifests in architecture. So when you see Eastern art, you see Eastern art is very different from Western art. Um, when you see Chinese art, Chinese art is very unique to China. And therefore, it expresses in mythology of China. Um, the fact that they use chopsticks, Indians use their fingers. Um, in Europe today, they use, uh, 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 you know, when you use a fork and knife, all that comes with a particular worldview that emerges. Mm. And um, if you see the history of time, over time, there are only three or four uh, basic structures that manifest in different forms. It doesn't really change at a... At a very fundamental level, human beings don't change because of technology. Mm. We would like to believe that we are different because we fly on an aeroplane, but really we're no different from our chariot riding ancestors. Mm. You know, at a very basic human level, we have not changed. Technology doesn't change. I mean, you'd like to believe that technology is going to make us different from people who lived 5,000 years ago, but it doesn't really. The human brain doesn't change so dramatically. 
So you said that there are three or four kind of main worldviews that have created all of these mythologies. I guess your expertise is in the Indian one, but in your TED talk, you talked about the East meeting the Western mythologies when Alexander the Great met with a yogi or what you called a gymnosophist. gymnosophist. Uh, can you start with that story to elucidate a little bit about the difference in the views, in the different worldviews? This is an ancient legend. I mean, one doesn't know historically whether it actually happened. What we do know is that Alexander did come to the borders of India. He did meet strange men and his, all his Greek uh, scholars who accompanied him kept writing this word gymnosophist, which translates as a naked wise man. Mm -hmm. And that's the meaning of the word. It's a Greek word. Gymno is naked and sophist is a intellectual. And this mm -hmm. naked intellectuals, that's the word he used. And it's because, and it's very funny because the period when it came, there was this whole movement happening in India. It's, it's the famous Axis age around the world. A lot of philosophical movements were taking place. And we do know that in India, there's a tradition of naked ascetics. They are called digambars or the sky clad ascetics. And their images can be found across India. Large, gigantic images of men who are wearing nothing. And they have given up the, and they are, you know, their face is very peaceful and calm and they wear nothing. Digambar means sky clad. So probably they, he must have met some people and legends have emerged around it. So, you know, of course, this conversation I have sort of paraphrased and put it simply for the audience to understand. Sure. But Alexander is conquering the world and he meets the gymnosophist and he's asking the gymnosophist, uh, he just sees this man sitting in one place meditating and asks him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm experiencing nothingness. Mm -hmm. Then the gymnosophist asks Alexander, what are you doing? And he says, I'm conquering the world. And they both laugh. Each one is thinking the other is a fool. Because Alexander believes that you live only once. And when you live only once, you have to achieve things. And if you don't achieve things, you won't be extraordinary. And if you're not extraordinary, how will you get a place in Elysium, which is the heaven of the gods that he believes in? So his whole life revolves around the word achievement. You have to achieve things. You have to be somebody. You have to do something. Only then will the gods respect you. And it revolves around the assumption that you live only once. And that's the myth he lives in. Mm -hmm. But the gymnosophist doesn't live in that myth. His story symbols and rituals are very different. He has been told all his life that you live not once, but infinite number of times. And if you live infinite number of times, there is nowhere to go. There is no destination. There is no full stop. There is no point that whether you achieve or you don't achieve, it doesn't make a difference. You have to understand. The purpose of life is not to achieve, but to understand. So you have seen two different ways of looking at life. One person is saying that the value of my life is the sum total of my achievements. The other is saying the value of my life, no matter what I do, is zero because the denominator of my life is infinity. Hmm. So imagine if you live all your life thinking no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. And the other person saying, whatever I do matters. They're two different people. Now, this can be anywhere in the world even today, right? You meet people like that. They're driven. They want to achieve something. Let's do it. You know, the famous line, let's do it. The gymnosophist would say, why? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the person who's doing it, see, there are problems to be solved. And the gymnosophist will say, well, you see problems. I don't see them. So you are constructing problems and you're constructing solutions. I am seeing every solution is a problem. You're creating new problems and you're creating a ferrous wheel of problems. So it's just different approaches to life. Neither one is ontologically true. 
you see them in these are philosophical words right ontology that there is a truth out there indian thought says no it's your point of view and there are points of view in the world and everybody has a different point of view and we function according to our point of view and uh, there's no right point of view or wrong point of view when you're driven by your point of view and you have to just look at the world differently so that's the story the gymnosophist and alexander shows a clash of civilizations yeah. a classic greek view of achievement and you know the olympus games came from the greeks it was all about running and achieving a target reach you know crossing a threshold being better than faster being stronger running faster the whole idea of the marathon of pushing yourself mm. you wouldn't find a marathon or olympic games in india <laughs> you know the images are of still people sitting still they're not running <laughs> still. the visual architecture of the um, and is never running he's always sitting there's yeah. no sermons they're just sitting down and just in most cases the eyes are shut they're looking inwards so it's a very different point of view and mythology looks at these points of view and just appreciate okay how did these come come about um, doesn't judge them doesn't say this is better this is worse um, you know and if you look at it from a neuropsychological point of view uh, one the greek approach is a very left brain linear approach and the the gymnosophist is a very right brained approach it's a, a holistic larger looking at infinity looking at nothingness which is shunya or zero um so you know you see these two different points of view and that's how mythology is understood these are the two very big patterns in india in the world sorry these are the two big patterns um, these are not the only patterns but these are the two major patterns that shape our lives and now it seems though uh in the west in the united states a lot of people especially our listeners they're very interested in you know sitting down being in stillness understanding deeper levels of spirituality coming out of the like uh wheel of achievement that we've all been programmed to, to in America and so they go they gravitate towards the east but then you look at the east or you look at India and there's all these people really wanting achievement and material wealth and there's this huge boom Cross in India <laughs> yeah, they're so badly wanting that. There is this huge, huge crossover happening. You know, with, with that um, kind of statement, David, that what comes to mind to me is in the West now, in that kind of inward-looking ideal, there's a, a big concept of transcending or transcendence that gets kind of thrown around. How, what is that from your perspective, and how does that kind of fit into that story? Like, but can both are both sides seeking to transcend something um, themselves, perhaps, or their story? What is that next step where we move beyond um, those? I don't know what we call it worldviews that that kind of uh, inform and direct us and become free to find out that deeper part of ourselves. What does the year twenty fifty look like? <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, this word transcendence has become very popular in america because in the 1960s yes. um uh, and across the world this word transcendence we must remember it's also historical some of the yogis the people who went from india in 1960s uh, there is mahesh yogi and all of them they started talking about transcendence 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 consciousness these words are and these are incomplete indian ideas they are very popular but they are not complete indian ideas um, you see uh, you have to go uh, to understand transcendence you have to appreciate how indian philosophy emerged and indian philosophy has two major schools of thought which are always vying for power with each other they are always in conflict and the fundamental approach is one is saying should you be a hermit 
or should you be a householder? This is a fundamental Indian concept. A hermit is someone who withdraws from the world. He's withdrawing. And where does he withdraw to? So when you withdraw, withdraw, withdraw towards the world, where do you go? When I start withdrawing, the idea was, and this is the Buddhist way, this is the Shramana way, the hermits, these are the ideas which emerge. And they said, if you keep withdrawing, 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 one day you'll come towards a kind of a point where you step away from the material world and you enter the zone of nothingness or zero, shunya. And that's the whole idea of the hermit. He's moving inwards, inwards to a point where he just withdraws from the material world. I'm simplifying it for the sake of the audience. It's of course far more complex idea than this, but it's moving away from the world that we experience through our senses. Our senses experiencing a world, our mind is sort of making sense of it, uh, judging it, giving it form, shape, uh, you know, deciding this is the problem, this is the solution, this is the hierarchy. And then they're saying if you withdraw, withdraw, withdraw completely, all this sort of dissolves, disappears, and you reach the zone of transcendence, which is zero. But there's a, another school of thought, which is saying, no, no, the point of life is not to withdraw, Having withdrawn, you have to come back and participate in the material world, which is the world of the householder. And this is the world of family, of relationships, of responsibilities, of duties. And you engage with the world fully aware that in the end, nothing matters. And therefore, you're engaging with wisdom and you move towards the opposite of zero, which is infinity. And infinity in India is the name of God is called infinity. The word is Ananda. So there's zero and infinity are the two extreme schools of thought in India. One is withdrawing. One is participating. One is moving towards the hermit. The other is moving towards the householder. This extreme space and is where they're moving towards is the zone of transcendence. You're, you're trying to deal with the reality that is nature or Prakriti. The world that we inhabit is nature. I mean, whether we exist or don't exist, nature will always exist. Whether life exists or doesn't exist, nature will always exist. And that's the canvas on which human thought exists. And that is how Indian thought is designed. So there is nature and humans are dealing with nature, our engagement with nature. And this engagement makes us say, I can't handle nature. So I want to withdraw. That is the hermit approach. And the other is I want to engage with nature, participate. And that is moving towards infinity. So that's how the word transcendence emerges in Indian tradition. Uh, to you, and to be or not to be part of nature. Seems like we have both those movements in ourselves, that feeling of wanting to withdraw and that feeling of wanting to extend ourselves into the world kind of yes. coexist and we go back and forth in them. Yes, you see all the mythic ideas when you listen carefully will resonate with every human being around the world it is a question of what is emphasized. Mm. So I always use this approach that it's like a spice rack. So every, all of us as human beings have a spice rack, but our culture values a particular spice rack. And therefore that sort of amplifies itself in a particular zone. Mm. And that is, so in a crisis, you will, how will you react? And the crisis is how you react determines so many things. And that is how cultures are different from each other because they've chosen a particular spice to cope with their life. But all the spices exist within them. That's why there is a good myth has to resonate with you at a very fundamental level. Hmm. And that's why they've survived for so long because it, they sort of 
resonate at a very primal level within us. Yes. And so if uh, some, some folks are listening to this and they're going, okay, how do I find a myth that resonates with me that I can almost like poster on the wall or think of every day and go, okay, I'm modeling my life after this myth to, to take myself to the next step. So for example, a lot of our listeners, if they live in the West, then they're probably on the achievement train. <laughs> they have to cl- climb uh, the mountain, Mount Olympus, right? And they have to, they have to conquer. That's, that's, we get on that train. So how do we find a myth that helps us kind of reorient ourselves to go, okay, that's maybe important, but transcendence is also important. Awakening, spiritual awakening is important. Is there a myth that maybe that you use in your own life to help you balance that or to help you move forward every day? So um, you can't have one size that fits all. Hmm. So there are different, uh, different people have different needs. So as I said, the Western myth revolves around the idea of one life. And again, there is a conflict there too. It's not a simple uh, achievement orientation. One uh, is the Greco-Roman myths, which are revolved around achievement. And so it's whenever you talk about achievements, it's really a Greco-Roman view of the world. It's this. And you have a book for us. Sorry? And you have a book for us around Greco-Roman myths. Do you want to share that? Yes. Yes. So all the Trojan battles and all the Iliad, Odyssey, all that. Uh, uh, they are all around achievement, right? If you look at the, uh, look at the book Iliad uh, uh, of Homer, it's about this young man called Achilles. He's so powerful that when he participates in battle, you win. And when he withdraws from the battle, you lose. So he's this, and he's petulant and he, he wants his way or no other way. He challenges authority, which is Agamemnon in the story, the, uh, the leader of the army. He doesn't care for authority. So when you see a young man who doesn't care for authority, and you know, not if you use words like uh, he's a brash kid, he's a young Turk, uh, he's changing technology, very subversive, changing the system. Um, activists, many activists have this tendency. They want to change the world, single-handedly change the world. This is a very uh, classical, uh, the heroic struggle against authority, which comes, and Joseph Campbell was famous for creating the hero myth, but he mm-hmm. called it the monomyth. He called it as a universal phenomenon. But this is only one of the many myths in the world. He just focused on this one thing and Hollywood loves it. Hollywood yes. loves the monomyth, this one superhero who goes and changes the world, right? We love him and we love that Marvel comics and Disney makes millions out of it. <laughs> Appealing to that side of us, this one man who changes the world. That's one myth. The other myth is the biblical myth. The idea that hubris is a dangerous thing. You should not think that you can change the world. There is a larger system at work and you have to submit to the larger system. So it's not individualism, but you have to be part of a collective. You have to submit to a larger narrative. Now, what this larger narrative, of course, nobody can agree on, and therefore you have the wars around the world. The Jewish people will have their Talmud, the Muslims will have Quran, somebody will have Bible. There are so many gurus out there telling you that I have the right word, (laughs) but it revolves around followership. So it's not leadership, but followership. So this is the conflict in the West. Should I lead? Should I be the change agent? Or should I follow someone and submit to authority? Mm. You know, and classically, this is the individualism versus collectivism battle which goes on in the West. And now mm-hmm. spreading around the world because you know, Western doctrine has become very powerful, which is very different from the hermit householder conflict, which you see yes. in India. So, yes. but they're, you know, at one level, they're similar, but... The hermit householder is on the basis of infinity. So you, have, you know, you have to classify these myths. So when somebody is asking, "Hey, what should be my myth?" It, it varies. 
um, if you are an achievement seeker, I would always recommend look at the opposite. Look at the things that you are not. Why do you not want to be a follower? Why do you want to change the world? Or if you are a follower and you just want to listen to other people, hey, why do you want to listen to others? Why don't you focus on your own viewpoint? Why don't you take responsibility for your own actions? So you move from one to the other and that sort of creates a tension which makes you question life, your way of being and also makes you more empathetic. You understand how other people function. My focus of my work is around looking at other people. It is not inward gaze but outward gaze. So most of my work revolves not around reflection, self-reflection. My work is look at the myths that other people live in and work with their myths. Don't try to change their myths. Just to figure out what they are. If they are heroic, let them be heroic. And, uh, you know, if they want <laughs> to be, <laughs> you know, otherwise you'll create tension, and that's why conflicts happen. Our conflicts happen because we impose our myths on other people. I think life is about negotiating through multiple myths, and everybody has their own myths. And um, a good conversation reveals a person's myth. Wow. that's the focus in which I my work is always. Around. So when I wrote this book. You know, it is not, a, it is the, the Indian retelling of Greek myths. So there's always a dialogue. My conversation is always in the form of a dialogue, not an argument, but a dialogue. And I, I, I don't like that uh, arguments. I don't believe in this argument based knowledge systems that emerges from Western universities and from Greco Roman thought. Uh, I just feel it's very violent. It eventually leads yeah. to what is happening right now in society. You have this aggressive, nobody listening to anybody's snarly social media, where everybody's yeah. shouting and nobody's listening. Yeah. I have a degree in Western philosophy and I've had that experience in college for sure. <laughs> it's very combative. Yes, it is combative. That's the word. It's, I call it combatism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to a conversation in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, That's where I, grew I have up. been there I, and they just see me shut down when I'm listening and I'm, I'm explaining and I see somebody, you know, get out his sword and being a gladiator. <laughs> I just put down my weapons and says, you win, you're right. And then they get very upset because they want to really combat and you just, I'm like, I'm not interested in combating and I'm perfectly fine if you have the crown. And mm. then they get uncomfortable, right? Because the fun has been taken away. <laughs> fun is in defeating and dominating and I'm like, you want to be alpha? I don't mind being beta. It's fine. And, and the, the fun is gone. And you know, that's the whole, because you have to see the other. And then you recognize in the argument, the desire to dominate comes. The desire for, uh, so one of the key themes in my thought is, uh, and it comes from the Indian tradition, that there's no one truth. There are multiple truths in the world. Everybody looks at the world differently. And when we're talking about truth, we're not talking about measurable scientific data, material sciences. We're talking about human beings and our opinions and myths that we live in. And that's the whole idea that if everywhere in the world, people think differently. And if you're always going to combat, why are you combating? Why can't they be allowed to have an alternate point of view? <laughs> Is it okay to have multiple points of view? We talk about plurality, but we want to combat. You know, mm. So that's the, that's, uh, that's the moment I see that, oh, the man, people don't understand uh, diversity. They love the word but they don't get it because yeah. diversity is keeping your mouth shut and mm -hmm. allowing things to grow around you and negotiating your way through it without losing yourself, without losing who you are. And that's, I think, a challenge. It's not easy.
And India is one of the most diverse places in the world, but it's so diverse that even their diversities, they have that clash as well, because there is a very hardline kind of Hindu point of view that's kind of squashing the rest of the diversity that I've seen there. And at the same time, there's an incredible amount of diversity, of spiritual diversity. It just blew my mind coming from the United States. You know, my, when I was in my mid early 20s and I got to India, I was just like eyes wide open, like, what the hell? There's so much here. <laughs> <laughs> I've co since come to realize that there's planet Earth and then there is India. It's almost the same <laughs> planet. <laughs> you land there and it's just chaos, but order. It's ordered chaos where irrationality is valued, um, almost like rationality, right? There's, yeah. there's like there's this, uh, in America, if you do something irrational, people will invalidate you like that was stupid. That was irrational. Why did you do that? It made no sense. You're stupid. But in India, I've seen people do the craziest stuff and it's like totally okay. And they do it for no reason. And it almost makes you feel good. <laughs> I don't really know how, I'm sure you could give it better words than I can. Can you explain that madness? Um, you know, the whole idea is, um, do we allow people to be stupid? Mm -hmm. You know, that's tolerance, right? Mm. Uh, what is tolerance? We allow people to be stupid. We allow people to be whatever <laughs> they are. And uh, that's what we do in family. That's what we do in good relationships where we mm. allow people to be. And there is, of course, it's, you know, one can romanticize India, but it is also the dark side. There's also poverty. There's also misery. And as you said, there's this right wing, very dark form. And, you know, Indians will realize, oh, this will come and this will go. These things happen. So the only, either some people will combat them, that, oh, we have to combat. This is also part of diversity, right? There's a combative side is included. It's not excluded. It is included, but it's only one approach. And usually when you see extreme right wing people in India, I don't feel the need to argue. I'm like, okay, fine. You're the boss. You're the king. <laughs> I know these two shall pass. For yeah. thousands of years, many people have come to do this and change the world and conquer the world. They haven't succeeded. But of course you can try. And I will support you and be your cheerleader, even though I know you'll fail. <laughs> 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 so, the, you know, that's a gymnosophist approach, right? He'll be Alexander's cheerleader. And um, yeah. the whole thing is, it's not to invalidate the other. It is to step back and, you know, some, maybe it's, that's the whole idea. When you, for example, when you read Bhagavad Gita, we are talking about Bhagavad Gita. Oh, show us so, that book, please. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I would, this is the, my reading of a very complex book. It's a very complex book, really. Uh, um, and this is called My Gita. And the very important emphasis on my, because... I believe in subjectivity. I don't believe in a, uh, philosophy can be objective. We bring our experiences into our philosophy and we are conditioned by our prejudices. Then it's fine. There's no problem with that. The question is, do I accommodate and allow others to have their own prejudices? And do we sort of then negotiate with each other and expand ourselves to accommodate other thoughts? And, you know, um, it's how do we include and it's a complex process. And that's the approach. So in, uh, you know, I keep talking, one of the ideas which come from this philosophical text, a very important philosophical text in India, is that just as every plant is different, and not every plant is valuable to you, every human being in the world is different, and not everybody will be of value to you. So, for example, you, you know, I can see, a, you know, outside your window, there's a coconut tree. And mm. that is a value. That's, the coconut tree has value. But it, imagine if there was um, a plant which was poisonous fruits, I will not value it. I'll not put it in my garden. I'll not put it in my house. I will not allow it uh, around me, but it has a reason to exist. Nature created it for a reason. 
I may not understand it. I may not see value in it. But when nature creates it, there is a reason and I must allow it, but maybe not in my space. Mm-hmm. But I can't invalidate it. I can't say you are a wrong plant because you're producing poison. Because birds, I'm sure there are birds that can eat that fruit and don't find it poisonous. So that approach, that's why nature is a very fundamental idea which comes uh, in these uh, uh, philosophies. So you sort of, how do you negotiate with the other? How do you deal with the other? That's the big conversation. Do you withdraw? Sometimes you have to withdraw. You just sort of like, I don't want to deal with you. And sometimes you engage and you withdraw and you engage. And so part of the Indian worldview comes from the Gita. Can you explain for our listeners who have never really understood the Gita or what it is, a little bit about it and the story between Krishna and Arjuna and um, what worldview comes out of it? So Gita basically means a song. Gita. Oh, okay. The real word, the, the Hindi pronunciation of the, is Gita. It's not Gita, but it's Gita. It's a song. And uh, all philosophies are presented in India songs because this, remember they were oral traditions nobody wrote it down and songs are easier to remember so the yeah. original songs and all Indian philosophy really spreads through song and well, this is a song of 700 verses which contains it's like a quilt of all Indian philosophy that's why it's become very popular it's become very popular in India it's part of a larger epic it is like the, the Greeks had Iliad and Odyssey Indians have this epic and I've written a book on the epic also called Jaya which is the Mahabharata the Mahabharata is a great story of war. It's a war story between, you know, the, it's between on one side there are hundred brothers and the other side there are five brothers and they're fighting over property. So it's a property dispute. And uh, at a very different, uh, and the hundred brothers are saying this entire thing belongs to us. And the five brothers says that's not fair. So it's a con, it's a con fair because it's a very complicated story. And just when they're about to fight, this great war has been declared and the hundred brothers have managed to get 11 armies. The five brothers have got only seven armies and they're about to clash. And just so it's a very combative zone, they're all ready to fight the greatest warriors in the world. Just when they're about to fight, Arjun, one of the great heroes of the five brothers, he's the third brother. So not the eldest, not the youngest, the middle brother. He is suddenly asking and he tells his charioteer who happens to be Krishna, that, you know, I want to see what's going on. Let's just step back and see what's going on. And he says, you know what? My family is behind me and my family is in front of me. I'm going to fight my family for a piece of land. They want to kill each other for a piece of land. This doesn't make sense. So I, should, I don't want to fight. I want to give up. I want to let it go. This doesn't make sense. I know there's a rational reason for it. There's justice and there's fairness and they are being jerks and we have to fight for it, but I don't want to fight. And he lays down his weapon. So it's a very pacifist argument. And he's saying, I'm going to withdraw from the world. And if you remember, I kept talking about the tension between the schools of thought that whether you withdraw or whether you engage. So Gita is a book of engagement. It is the opposite school. It is not saying you withdraw it, participate. But the question is, how do you participate is the question. And the conversation therefore takes you on a journey of how do you participate? Are you engaging? And for whose benefit are you participating? Who is the beneficiary of your action? And if it is only you are the beneficiary of your action, then it's your ego at play. But you are an instrument in a larger process. If you, and that conversation happens, and that's the word yoga is really used in this book in a very complex way. It says you have to connect. Yoga basically means to connect. And you can connect to the world and to the larger principles of life. So connect inwards, 
connect outwards and basically connect with the world. And how do you connect? It gives you three approaches. It says connect intellectually, which is the Jnana Yoga. So intellectually you're connected. The other is Karma Yoga, connect through actions, which is Karma Yoga. So activity, doing things with your hands. So there's the head approach, there's the hand approach. Uh, and then there is the most powerful thing over here is the emotional approach, Bhakti. Connect to the world through emotion. Understands people's fears and insecurities and engage with the world. So you have this very long dialogue and of course there are different schools of thought of what it actually means. But at the end of it, he gets Arjun to participate in the battle mm. and engage with it. But the point is, it's not how, it is not the act of engagement, but it is what is going on in your mind when you're engaging, which mm. is the key. So mind plays a very important role. One of the ideas over here is the word which is used as Dehi. So Deha is your body and Dehi is the resident of your body. So we are, we have a body and within us is this entity called the resident of the body. And or who the is Atman. this? The, the Atma is a word which is used in Vedanta, but there, okay. you know, there are many, many schools of thought. And um, of course, now the popular school of thought is Vedanta and everywhere the words Atma, Brahma is used and people are familiar with it. But mm. at a very simple level, it just means your mind. Mm. We try to make it very complicated. We use words like consciousness and use these big words and transcendence. It just means your mind. And how does your mind engage with the world? And this whole, and how, do you see other people's mind? So every human being is a body and every human being in the body has a mind. So every living entity, other than, you know, computers don't have a mind. They may have artificial intelligence, but they can have senses so they can see you. Technically they can see you, but they don't have two things. They don't have hunger. They're not hungry. A machine is not hungry, but the human body is hungry. And that is what makes us a living organism. Hunger. Hunger for food, hunger for love, hunger for achievement, hunger for knowledge, hunger for power. And the second thing is fear. So this idea of being frightened that somebody is going, is going to be so hungry, it's going to consume me. So the hungry part makes me a predator. And the free, fearful part makes me the prey. And this idea is fundamental Indian philosophy. And unless you understand this idea of the predator and the prey, you don't really get to understand Indian philosophy. Wow. And what has happened over time is everybody uses these refined words like consciousness and Atma and Brahma, but we forget nature, which is the basis on which all this philosophy is built on this. And therefore, when it comes to the Mahabharata, you know, the dialogue is the brothers are fighting like dogs fighting over meat. But dogs will fight over meat, right? When they're hungry, they'll pounce on the meat and they'll fight each other and the alpha will take it. Yeah. And so is it, as humans, how different are we? If we are also fighting over a piece of land, we are just that. And Krishna is therefore intervening and saying it is how the resident of the body engages. How is it thinking? What is the process of thought? Animals process of thought and your process of thought. And that is where magic happens. You can be an animal and you can think like an animal, but the animal doesn't have the wherewithal. It's unfair for humans to compare themselves with the animal kingdom. Because the animal kingdom has a brain, which is the kind of brain which allows them to function in a particular way. But we have a larger brain. We have imagination. 
we can empathize with the other. And if your violence is based on empathy, or is it based on self-absorption? So these are the conversations that Gita brings to the fore. But it uses very coded language, uses Sanskrit is a highly coded language, very poetic language. And there are a lot of assumptions. So when these, this word, there's an assumption of a tradition. They know, they assume that you know the basics. So this is like a PhD thesis. And therefore, when you're reading this book, it is assuming, I mean, normally, not this book, but if you read the, the Bhagavad Gita, it's assuming you have a grounding in basics understanding. So when I wrote this book, I, I sort of didn't presuppose that. I said, okay, let's go to the basics of Indian philosophy. Let's try to understand what is it trying to say. And, you know, I find Indian philosophy has been made too exotic. And sometimes when I see some of them, I'm like, oh my God, they're making it so exotic. It's so <laughs> Why are they making it so complicated? It is. Um, and therefore these wars, because it's a very violent. Imagine you have a God saying, India is a land where everybody talks of non-violence. But Gita is a book which says, go and fight. You have to fight. Mm. How do you reconcile this two? There is the non-violent hermit and there is the violent householder. And this is the complex journey that not many people, they try to, they make a binary out of it. That, oh, this is, this is some kind of a vile Hindu tradition. And in the 19th century, that's what the British said. The British said that good Buddhist and bad Hindu. The Buddhists are the non-violent sages and the Hindus are the violent ones. And so they created this binary without really understanding the complexity of this narrative. Is that what the nature of the violence? Are you coming from, because violence can be because I'm fighting for myself and I'm for, uh, fighting for a larger narrative to feed the other. And therefore the conversation is who is the other that you're feeding in this conversation? Because only humans can feed others. We have this ability to cook and serve food to others. You don't see this in animal kingdom. Animals only can feed their children, the, the young ones, but the child then flies away. The, little bird. There is no concept of exchanging food, sharing food and human civilization is revolves around sharing. And therefore this battle scene is really about who is really sharing in this battle. Who is fighting for whom? What is the larger narrative which is shaping the conflict? Hmm. That is Dehi, the resident of the mind. And therefore the Atma is watching this. The Atma is able to see it stepping back, stepping back, stepping back, moving and is aware of both zero and infinity. And therefore is able to catch you, fooling yourself or you're tricking yourself. Or you think, so it is able to see your, your myths, the stories that you tell yourself to justify and rationalize your actions. Hmm. And the stories that other people tell themselves to rationalize and justify their actions. Wow. That's incredible. That's the best description I've heard of the Bhagavad Gita for sure. And for a very layman person, I was telling you guys this before we started that the, my, one of my favorite movies, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which you both should see. So yeah, in the movie, The Legend of Bagger Vance, uh, Krishna just appears out of nowhere, who is Will Smith, and he meets Matt Damon. And Matt Damon is this legend golfer who disappeared. He left the world. And now he's deciding, do I come back into the world? Do I play again? Do I go to battle for my honor, for, for everything, for money, for everything that I need for a woman in this film? <laughs> and uh, so Krishna or Will Smith is guiding him through this process of how to do it. And most of the film, Krishna doesn't mention golf very much. <laughs> Even though it's all about swinging the clubs 
you know, and making a hole in one or whatever it is and winning. Krishna is almost always bringing it back to what is happening inside of, or Will Smith's bringing it back to what's happening inside of uh, Matt Damon's mind. And when he starts to defeat the demons in his mind, that's when he wins the golf match. And that's when, you know, in the Hollywood film, he gets the girl and all, all of that. <laughs> Everything works out. Right? Yeah, so it's a very Hollywood version of, uh, of the Bhagavad Gita, but I think it's a good start and, and worth watching for. Yeah. So, you the, I, I, this is one point to keep in mind. The problem with the popular versions of the Gita is that Krishna sounds like a motivational speaker. Yeah. <laughs> Motivate the dejected and then you win the war. But that's not the book. Because in the book, he doesn't quite win. And that's the whole story. His entire family is wiped out. All his children are killed. Wow. So it's a pyrrhic victory. It's a victory where you get the kingdom, but your children are dead. Wow. All your children are dead. And this is the little part that all the professors on Bhagavad Gita when they're giving lectures do not tell the students. And so this becomes a motivational speech. And that is my problem when I see some. That's why, you know, when you try to isolate the book from the epic, mm -hmm. you don't get it. There is a reason this dialogue is kept inside a story. You have to see what happens before. You have to see what happens after. And it is in a crisis that the story is told. It is not told in a normal situation. It's in a psychological crisis where you're sort of paralyzed. You're paralyzed. Mm. But it doesn't mean your action is going to give you wonderful things. So this whole view of, oh, he fought and he got the girl. He doesn't get the girl. In the <laughs> he has to deal with the horror of war. It's a horrible, the next, there's a whole chapter which describes the battlefield, which is covered with blood and there are wolves and there are carrion crow and vultures and the mothers are wailing and Krishna is standing and watching and they're saying, you caused this war. You destroyed the clan. He's cursed. Krishna is cursed that your entire clan will be destroyed. So it's a very dark end. There's nothing glorious about this war at all. But mm -hmm. nobody tells us that. Uh -huh. Even on television serials which are made on this, they make it like good guys, bad guys, bad guys are killed, good guys win, Krishna enables you to win. And I'm like, that's not Indian philosophy. <laughs> you have Bollywoodized it, Hollywoodized it, Hollywoodized turned it. it into a fairy tale. Yeah. Happily ever after. You've given it a full stop. You've not given it a comma. As mm. long as you have a full stop in a story, it becomes a Western narrative. Mm. Happily mm. ever after. The, whole, the story ends. But you know, now there are mini series. <laughs> I love the mini series concept because you see, I don't know when the story is going to end because there can be another season. And another mm. season. And in every season, the hero becomes the villain. The villain becomes the hero. Yes. And that is really Eastern tradition catching up. There's another life. And there's another life. And there's another story. And there's another story. And it never ends. The stories don't end. Game of Thrones is never going to end. There are always going to be a spin-off and spin-off and spin-off. So mm. can I ask a question uh, real quick? Oh, sorry. I was go, just go say, so if it never ends, uh, what, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Enjoy the moment. That's the, that's yeah. the moment. There is no finishing line. Yes. But although, so the, the, I do have a question on this topic of that story, because that story seems to be all about conflict and violence and maybe the balance of power. Maybe there's a lot of different things we could read into it. And maybe this is kind of an uninformed question because I don't know a whole lot about that story. But if myth kind of informs us 
about growth or about our journey or about who we are. Is there a, you know, when we look around the world, there's lots of conflict, lots of violence in the world. Is, is there, does this story inform us about a way through or be, be past beyond violence through conflict to another side maybe that is us evolved into a more peaceful uh, place? Okay, so, um, you know, this is where the, the fundamentals of Indian philosophy have to come. And the fundamentals come from nature, right? Mm -hmm. We must understand where does violence come from? What is the origin of violence in nature? Where does it come from? If our planet was made up of only rocks, there would be no violence. You know, a volcano is not a violent action, right? Nobody, if there is no living creature, nothing dies. And therefore, there is no violence. Violence happens when a living creature dies. Mm. And that's, the, that's where you start using the word violence, when a living thing becomes non-living. And therefore death happens, a violent intervention into the life. And it is really violence when a living thing causes the death of a living thing. I mean, a rock falls on top of you, you're walking in the forest, a boulder falls on you, that's not really violence, it's an accident. But mm. if a man picks up a rock and throws it on you and hits you, then it's violence. So violence has to be understood carefully. It's Violence is when a living creature kills another living creature. And why do living creatures kill other creatures? Now you can look at nature again. We animals kill other living animals when they are hungry for food. So in the Upanishads, the great Indian scriptures, the Vedas, there's always say the world is made up of eaters and eaten. Those that eat and those that get eaten. There is the predator and the prey. And their violence is as long as the predator is hungry, it is going to kill. The moment its hunger stops, it stops killing. Mm -hmm. So imagine a world where there is no hunger. That world will not have violence. You know, you've heard this famous biblical line, right? The lion shall lay with the lamb. Mm -hmm. It's a very famous line. Yeah. It's not really an exact line from the Bible. It's a paraphrased line. It says the lion shall lay with the lamb. Now, when can this happen? This can only happen when the lion is not hungry. Mm -hmm. Then there is peace. So at the heart of violence is hunger. If you can, you know, Buddha uses the word, instead of hunger, he uses the word Trishna or Tana, which is thirst. He does an English translation is desire. Yeah. But he is not using the word desire. He is using the word thirst. Oh, wow. I That's know. the word. The original word is a very biological word, a very physiological word. You are thirsty, you drink water. You are hungry, you eat food. So your senses are hungry and thirsty all the time. They're continuously hungry, hungry, hungry. So yeah. if you can kill that hunger, theoretically, you are not going to be violent. Hmm. But will it stop other creatures from being violent towards you? You may stop being the predator, but others will still want to eat you. You have not stopped their <laughs> hunger. You will be prey. From lion, you will pick up the lamb, but the other lions are going to attack you. Right. Will you, can we imagine a world when nobody is hungry? That's the world where there's no violence. So therefore, when you talk about the end of hunger, it's going towards zero, 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 towards hermit. But the hermit is an individualist. He's thinking only for himself. He's alone in his journey. Therefore, he's described as eyes shut, sitting in a cave in isolation. It's his private, it is his personal journey where he withdraws hunger. But then comes wisdom. He realizes, I have 
given up my hunger. I have not hungry at all, but everybody around me is hungry. What do I do? Do I run away from there? That's what Arjun is being told. Great, you are not hungry. So you can buy a runaway from the battle, but what about all these hungry people in the battlefield? Don't you think you should feed them? Or think about helping them outgrow their hunger? Now let's participate and figure out what you're doing. What is the, it is not getting the girl is really satisfying your hunger. You're still focused on your hunger. And therefore the idea is not dhyan. You know, there's a word in meditation that says dhyan, shut yeah. your eyes. Yeah. And you see the Buddha images with eyes are shut. That is an inward gaze towards your hunger. But the other word which is used in Indian philosophy is darshan. Open your eyes. So all the Hindu gods have these big eyes looking at you. <laughs> and they're looking at you because they want you to look back. Look at the hunger of the other. And it is the negotiation between your hunger and their hunger that is creating a relationship. Yes. And what is their hungry for? So the entire conversation is around food. The tragedy of the you know, philosophers who went to America and Europe in the 19th century and 20th century is they were all celibate men. Yes. And they were hermits. You mean like Yogananda? Hermit language. Mm. And that is why an incomplete knowledge has traveled to the West. This whole idea of the ascetic man, celibate, look at the words which come repeatedly. And they are all isolationists. They're, they're looking, withdrawing. They're not talking about hunger. They don't use the word hunger. But Indian philosophy revolves around this word hunger. Mm. Hunger, thirst, the physiological, which keeps things alive. So as long as there is hunger, there is going to be violence. And think about it. Even if you are the simplest man in the world, you want to build a farm. You're going to cut trees. The trees are going to destroy an ecosystem. There is violence against animals, against plants, against earth, against river. You want to be, you want to go to, you know, uh, uh, become a, a hunter gatherer. Hunter kills, so there's violence again. The gatherer. So the hermits in the old days would say that we will eat only a fruit which falls from a tree. We wouldn't pluck a fruit. Yes. Mm. So that's a theoretical explanation of a man who doesn't want to engage in violence. That's the meaning of it. I will not eat at all. That's why fasting is very important. They eat very less. They eat minimal. They will say that no, we will not. The, the act of eating is violence. And therefore, when you see the Kali image, you know, this ferocious image of the goddess where she has got blood dripping, it is really showing human hunger. Mm. It is a reflection of what is within us. This hungry, we are hungry for food. And so when you, I mean, how do you translate hunger in the modern world? You call it ambition. <laughs> and then it's cool, right? You have to be ambitious. You have to be hungry. In the MBA schools, everybody's taught, make yeah. a billion dollars. That's a violent act. It's, that is violence. Just because you're doing it inside the computer with computers, doesn't mean you're not being <laughs> violent. You know, it is violence, but it's just, uh, you are not, it's not violence as, because it's not visual. Your violence is not visible. You have sort of ice, but you're you are essentially feeding your, and the act of feeding is going to be violent. And, you know, classic example is Facebook, right? It is feeding on people's data. It's hungry. And therefore we are feeling violated. Our sense, we are not being hurt physically. 
but we are being hurt psychologically. We are feeling violated. You're taking away my data. You're taking away my privacy. And if you tell uh, Mark Zuckerberg that, you know, you're violent, he will say, no, I'm just <laughs> developing apps. I'm violent. I'm vegetarian. Very <laughs> narrow understanding of violence. Mm. This is violence. It's an energetic violence. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, it's, once you understand it at a metaphorical level, you understand violence and therefore ahimsa makes sense. You know, one of the biggest criticisms of Gandhi was that he was psychologically extremely violent. He was physically not violent, but he was passive aggressive. He was one of the most passive aggressive men you would have ever met in your life. He would psychologically force you to do whatever he felt was right. Mm. And we have, you must have met passive aggressive people, right? Mm-hmm. They don't, they're all very nice, but it's their <laughs> way or no other way, but it's scary, right? And this is also violence. Yes. Use the word violence in a very simplistic way, beating up people, the, you know, the guy who punches up people or shoots people or throws grenade, the terrorist. But in Indian thought, they will say that, you know what? Maybe he's not violent. He's just desperate. Now, how do you explain this? Because it's a, you start looking at the mind and saying that, you know, when a desperate man attacks you because he's hungry, you can't call him violent. Hmm. You know, and therefore the conversation of why are you fighting the battle? What is, where are you coming from? Who is in the battlefield? Are you coming with an empty stomach or a full stomach? Hmm. A man with an empty stomach desperately fighting for his meal cannot be equated with a man who has got a full stomach, has lots of food and doesn't want to give people food. Both of them are fighting. You can't call both of them violent. And this is the complex conversation of the Bhagavad Gita. And it's highly subjective. It's, you see, the concept of God as a judge doesn't exist. There is no judge in Hindu traditions. There's nobody watching you. There is no one deciding that this is right and wrong. There's no concept like that. It's you. You decide. You have to decide whether it's violent or not. So it's a lot of pressure on the individual. And if you think it's fine, it's fine. And it's a very dangerous place to go to. <laughs> the responsibility is on your shoulder. Yes. And that's how Indian philosophy works. Wow. That was incredibly deep. You know, every interview that I do, I realize how little I know, but this took it to a whole nother level. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we finish, can I just ask, um, well, first of all, share, let, just share that fourth book you brought yeah. with you. Definitely. So this is the book that I, I sort of, uh, it's not really my, I've written the introduction to this book um, and I sort of helped him curate this book. Um, this book was uh, sponsored by the Church of Sweden, which is on a project to make religion an ally for queer sexuality, lesbians, gays, transgenders. Um, and think that religion is always seen as this adversary, but they are genuinely trying to work towards making it an ally. And it's a three book project. The first book dealt with the Abrahamic faiths. So Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the second book, which is this, I am divine, so are you, um, which comes from the Indian philosophy, the Aham Brahmasmi, Tattvamasi, that there is divinity in every living creature. I am divine, yeah. Uh, I am divine and so are you. So Tattvamasi, so are you. So every person that I deal with has the spark of divinity within them. And through it, we are trying to show how Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, and Hinduism, which are karmic faiths, faiths that believe in rebirth, also can be an ally to the queer sexuality. So that, um, you know, because not much is written about the subjects, very few people really understand this. Um, and therefore the image over here you can see is of Shiva as half a woman, 
which mm -hmm. is as queer as they get. You won't find such images in most parts of the world. And yeah. Indians are absolutely comfortable with this image, but they don't know. When you say the word <laughs> queer, they get scared. No, 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 it's not queer. It's metaphorical. It's allegory. <laughs> don't, 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 don't. We don't want to deal with gay people. It's all Western. Which, yeah. And that happens everywhere. But... Yeah, I always joke with Cody that when you're in India, in every temple you go to, there's a Shiva lingam in, in every temple. And Westerners <laughs> they go, they have no idea. I'm like, that is a Shiva lingam. That is part of their tradition. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I love so much about the Indian. You know, the, uh, the Shiva linga, as the uh, Westerners see it, and the way Indians see it is very different. Very different. It's the, gaze, the classic gaze. Again, it is the result, like I said, 1960s and 70s, these celibate men went to the West. Yes. What has happened is every book that you will read about the Shiva Linga will translate it as a phallic symbol. Yes. Not yeah. a single Hindu calls it a phallic symbol, not right. one. And therefore they get very irritated because you know what it means? It means the form of the formless. It mm. is, that is the, what, when people are going to the temple, they are not seeing a phallic symbol. Of course. Nobody, their parents have never told them that. They've never heard this. They only hear this from Western tourists who wow. have read Western guidebooks, which are written by Western academicians, who are influenced by British Orientalists, and they're using <laughs> the word phallic, and they're like, but we have never heard it. We are Hindus. We have worshipped it. You know, it's like, I'll give you a simple example. It's like going into a church and looking at a Christian and saying, why do you worship a torture symbol? Yes. Right. Because a crucifix is technically a torture symbol. Oh, why do you worship a dead body? Yes. A man hanging, naked man hanging, why but the person who's actually in the church and is the faith, he doesn't see it that. He sees right. something totally different. This is really the tragedy of mythology. We don't see the world as others see it. The, the man who believes in Jesus and goes to the church sees Jesus very differently from an atheist who mocks him. Yes. In the same way, a Hindu who goes to a Shiva temple, he has never, ever heard the word phallic, ever. So I'm looking at my aunts and my cousins and they're like, they use the word, oh, these foreigners are so indecent. They use the word Abhadra. Why do they call it a phallic symbol? And I'm listening and quiet because I've read enough. So they look at me and saying, I should have all the answers. Because they have never, all their lives, these are 80 year old women who have gone to the temple of their lives and they've never seen it. And of course, the simple answer is, oh, they are prudish. No, they're not prudish. They've never been told this. This wow. is not the way they engaged with the faith. Yeah. They never did it. And therefore, whose gaze is important? The insider's gaze or the outsider's gaze? And this is something that, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons which made me write these books is I realized that academicians do not respect the insider's gaze across the world. Agreed. The intellectuals. And that is one of the reasons the right wing has risen up in such a big way. You go to universities across, and you spoke about New York and the argument. What is the purpose of an argument? It is basically saying your view doesn't have validity. That's highly different. And this is academics. So I've seen the best scholars in the world talking, and I'm like, why are we so rude? To each other, yes. Yeah, always snarly. <laughs> I, you know, it's not material sciences like, you know, um, a proton or a neutron or an atom or physics. It, you're not talking about things, we're talking about people. You yeah. can't use the laws of physics and chemistry and biology when you're dealing with sociology, anthropology, religion, philosophy, economics, politics, because now you're dealing with living organisms and not only living organisms who can imagine. 
you and I can imagine. And therefore, our imagination is doing strange things. And this combative tendency, which I see, which is now part of the world, is what has resulted in this intellectuals, the, the sheer, you know, when you see this flat earth movement, <laughs> and I hear people laugh, you know, it's, it's funny, right? Yeah. Like, you've seen those images, but you see, it is really an attack on the snobbery of the elite. Ah, uh, yeah. Which is not to allowed people to have alternate points of view. Oh, you don't believe it? I don't believe it. So I just sort of become petulant. I say, I will not agree with you. Now what will you do? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to, because the science has become an enemy of religion. Yes. Faith yeah. is for stupid people. Faith is for lesser people. Dumb people have believe in Jesus. Dumb people believe in Shiva. Dumb people believe in all these mumbo jumbo and rational, logical people don't need all that, which is not true. You know, the empathy is something that is missing. And so when I see all these crazy groups and they are crazy, they're, they're violent, very violent, but you have to look at them with empathy. For, say, for decades, we have invalidated people who think differently. And now they're biting back. Mm. And they're biting back with irrationality. Mm. Rationality, which is supposed to make us kinder, has made us nasty. And now karma. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, wow. Um, I have one more question, Cody. Sorry, I don't know if you do, but is there a myth that you kind of live by or just maybe one of your favorites that you kind of think about on a daily basis where you go, it help, where it helps kind of guide, guide your life. Okay. Um, am I allowed to tell a vulgar joke? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a WhatsApp forward. It's not really a myth, but it's, okay. it's sort of it, in a sense of um, the way I, my way of thinking. Uh, so there's a CEO of a company and he comes uh, to the office and he brags that on my wedding night, I did my wife seven times. <laughs> and everybody claps and says, oh my God, sir, you're so great. And then he looks at the general manager and says, what did you do on your wedding night? And the general manager, of course, deferring to power says, I could manage only five times. And but not seven, so you're greater than me and everybody claps. <laughs> and then uh, the clerk after that is asked, and the clerk says, so only two times. And uh, finally, you know, this is a new young recruit and they ask him, what about you? And he said, only once. And he said, why? You don't have any stamina? And he looks and says, well, it was the first time my wife was experiencing. I was considering her. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the room goes silent because no one in the room was considering the wife's wishes. They were all showing their macho side without looking at the considering the other. And this young boy is finally talking. Now, the, my myth is about listen to other people's myths. That's the myth which shapes me. Many a times we are so focused on our achievements, seven times, five times. We rarely look at the other and all our life is an engagement with the other. And it's a very difficult thing to look at other people because, uh, and sometimes you have to ask yourself, am I the predator in this relationship? Am I the prey in this relationship? Uh, mm. Am I nourishing the other? Am I exploiting the other? I think these conversations is what my, my whole work revolves around. My books, my writings um, revolves around this one idea, the other. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of that amazing wisdom. And if uh, some of our listeners, watch, people watching want to find you, where can they find you? 
uh, well, they can Google my website, devdutt.com. Uh, uh, and um, my email is devdutt at devdutt.com. And, and Devdutt, you've written over 30 books and 600 articles. Uh, you got so much free content. So if you guys are interested, uh, the link will be uh, in our show notes. So thank you so much for being on Energy Matters. We really appreciate it. All the way from India. Namaste. Yes. Thanks guys for listening. Thank we'll you See you so next much. time. Hey everybody. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Devda as much as I did. That was, you know, I don't know that much about Eastern philosophy and mythology and that was so informative and so deep and what a wonderful uh personality and just you know interactive chat that we got to have I'm very excited that we got a chance to talk to him thank you david for putting him on the list uh, i know that was a, a reach but mm -hmm. miracles do happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was pretty cool and if you want to find more of his work you can go to his website it's uh, it's pronounced devdut, but it's it's spelled D-E-V-D-U-T-T -T dot com. And uh, he's got over 30 books, hundreds of articles, kids' books. If you want to dive deep into mythology, check him out. Uh, and we'll have the link to his TED Talk uh, in the show notes. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it. It's so cool. And if you don't like it as much as me, well, then whatever. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening as always and uh shout out to energymatterspodcast.com if you want to get on our newsletter jump on our awakening to energy series meditate with us or, or just uh, check out all the previous episodes we've done they are all there they are all free and they're all there for you to consume and learn and grow so we hope you do and we hope you keep meditating we'll see you next time guys take care see you everybody You've been listening to the Energy Matters Podcast with Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by IntuitiveVision.net and GroundedMind.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.com. <laughs>